The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 654 for December 23rd, 2018. Next Generation GPS is here, AT&T plans to start marketing the latest LTE technologies as 5G, and eSIM activation woes. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie Podcast application, available now for Android and iOS for $1.99. First in the news this week, after months of delays, the U.S. Air Force is about to launch the first of a new generation of GPS satellites designed to be more accurate, secure, and versatile. However, some of their most highly touted features will not be fully available until 2022 or later because of problems in a companion program to develop a new ground control system for the satellites. Uh, The satellite is scheduled to lift off uh, this coming week from Cape Canaveral aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, first of 32 planned GPS-3 satellites to replace the older ones that are now in orbit. Compared with their predecessors, GPS-3 satellites will have a stronger military signal that's harder to jam, an improvement that became more urgent after Norway accused Russia of disrupting GPS signals during a NATO military exercise this past fall. GPS-3 will also provide a new civilian signal compatible with other countries' navigation satellites, such as the European Union's Galileo system. That means civilian receivers capable of receiving the new signal will have more satellites to lock in on, improving accuracy. And if your phone is looking for satellites, the more it can see, the more it can know where it is. Uh, the satellites will also ex- are expected to provide location information that's three times more accurate than the current satellites. Civilian GPS receivers are accurate today within 10 to 33 feet. Uh, that will change to an accuracy of uh, as up as up to uh, three feet uh, under good conditions. Uh, military receivers could even be a little bit closer. Next up, as it turns out, the FCC, if they ask you to do something, means you probably should, particularly, uh, or not do it if they tell you not to do something, and that comes to uh, launching unapproved satellites into orbit. Swarm Technologies, a startup, is being fined $900,000 by the FCC for launching four unauthorized satellites into orbit this past January. The FCC said that the unapproved launch and operation of the company's Space Bees, which are tiny experimental satellites, occurred a month after the agency denied its application for deployment. What's more, an investigation into operations by Swarm turned up several unauthorized weather balloon-to-ground station tests and unauthorized tests of its satellite-to-ground station equipment. Unauthorized deployment and operation of satellites risk satellite collisions and radio frequency interference, threatening critical commercial and government satellite operations, said the FCC. To settle the matter, Swarm Technologies admits to the that it engaged in these unlawful acts and will implement a five-year compliance plan and pay $900,000 in a civil penalty. Uh, we accept the decision by the FCC as reflected in the consent decree and appreciate the FCC's ongoing support for Swarm's mission. That, according to co-founder and CEO of Swarm, Sarah Spangello. Uh, and also, they said, with the recent FCC-authorized launch of three new Swarm satellites into low Earth orbit on the space latest SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, we move one step closer to enabling low-cost space-based connectivity anywhere in the world. The FCC confirmed that the, that Swarm hasn't incurred any additional violations since the agency launched its investigation. How do you think you're going to get away with something like that? That's just mind-blowing. 
I guess, you know, they figure, hey, let's just, what's the worst that can happen? We've got to pay a fine, probably a calculated business decision. And, uh, you know, ultimately they said, well, you know, a million bucks, you know, in the the course of uh, business over however many years they think they're going to be in business and the money that they, the revenue they think they're going to generate, it might have been uh, worth it for them to pay the fine. But yeah, how do you possibly do that? Not think you're going to get away with it. Obviously uh, not likely. AT&T this week said uh, that its mobile 5G service is now officially live in a handful of markets. Markets, making them the first major U.S. carrier to launch true 5G. AT&T is branding the service as AT&T 5G+. It relies on the 5G NR standard and makes use of AT&T's millimeter wave spectrum. The service is being offered in parts of Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Houston, Indy, Jacksonville, Louisville, Oklahoma City, New Orleans, Raleigh, San Antonio, and Waco. AT&T didn't say, though, when exactly the markets would have the service available, but it plans to expand to Vegas, LA, Nashville, Orlando, San Diego, San Francisco, and San Jose during the first half of next year. The first device to provide access is the 5G uh, Netgear Nighthawk mobile hotspot that goes on sale or went on sale on the 21st. Uh, Early adopters will be able to get the Nighthawk with mobile 5G service at no cost for three months. The device will be more widely available in the spring for $500. AT&T says the data only 5G service will start at $70 a month for 15 gigs, which at 5G speeds will go, you'll go through in about 37 seconds. AT&T expects to have at least one 5G phone reach the market. Uh, during the first half of the year with a second to follow before the end of 2019. The second device will include both millimeter wave and sub-6 gigahertz 5G spectrum. AT&T hasn't priced out phone-based 5G service just yet, but says it expects 5G service will be broadly available by late 2019 with nationwide coverage to follow in early 2020. Now, love that they got this out. Love that the first device is a puck, albeit a very large one, uh, because obviously that's, it, it allows you to, to test out the service and to use it uh, with a, a myriad of devices and uh, effectively be able to give 5G uh, speeds to all of your devices. But for $70 a month for 15 gigabytes. Now, 5G speeds, just to remind you about this, uh, with LTE and some of the advanced technologies, we're talking about two, three, four hundred megabits per second. Uh, when you're talking about 5G speeds, it's closer to gigabit speeds, if not faster, and they're giving you 15 gigabytes. It is ludicrous <laughs> how low that is when you're talking about uh, gigabit speeds. So, um, again, if, tread very carefully if you're using this because the speed is going to be very addictive and you're going to be using a lot more uh, bandwidth because of how fast you're downloading things. We had a similar conversation eight years ago when 4G launched and, and there was, you know, five gigs, I think, was the amount of data that was you know offered back at that point. Maybe it was even less. Uh, but this is uh, this is a completely different uh, kind of generation of speed. So again, just uh, you know, make sure you're watching your your usage as you're using it. Now, along with the launch of that 5G service. AT&T also announced this week that they will start deceiving customers early next year. They plan to change the indicator in the status bar of some Android phones from LTE to 5GE. Now, this will only occur in select markets and specifically in the cities and towns that have been upgraded to AT&T's 5G evolution technology, which, of course, isn't 5G at all. It's just a faster LTE network that has 4x4 MIMO, LAA, and 256 QAM 
all LTE-based technologies. Now, what AT&T calls 5G evolution will be up and running in more than 400 markets by the end of the year, so a good chunk of the network, and uh, those markets will have Android devices showing that logo change. And that comes along with the launch of its actual 5G network, and as we just talked about, the only device that can access this new network is a mobile hotspot. AT&T isn't expected to offer a 5G phone until March uh, or February, potentially, but once it does, 5G service will appear as 5G+. Plus, once it arrives, uh, AT&T's planned 5G-E indicator will certainly confuse customers into believing that they're connected to 5G service when, in fact, they are definitely not. That is really awesome. But, of course, uh, we've, we saw that way back when uh, T-Mobile decided that 3G was 4G, and they changed the indicator to show 4G for really no apparent reason. It was the HSPA Plus, uh, I think it was the T-Mobile had announced, and it was up to... 21 or maybe 42 megabits per second and interestingly if we look back at that and look at where we are today 10 years later call it eight years later uh it is definitely uh if you get speeds around 42 megabits per second you're doing pretty well on today's lte networks if you happen to be in in an area that has um, a good amount of backhaul to uh, a tower and you are in an area where there's not a lot of people on that tower uh, you can get into the hundreds of megabits per second uh, maybe not multiple hundreds but definitely over a hundred uh, but either way it does again it, it, these just, things just drive me crazy because it's definitely not 5g and you're going to start seeing people uh, with 5g on their devices and people talking about 5g like they now have it when it is in fact not at all it's just the evolution of lte and uh, ultimately a very deceiving practice uh, that is is just infuriating. Anyway, moving on. T-Mobile Monday said owners of its Apple iPhone uh, 10R, 10S, and 10S Max can now take advantage of the embedded eSIM. T-Mobile is allowing unlocked variants of these iPhones to access prepaid T-Mobile service as a secondary line. Now, in order to do so, you need to download the free T-Mobile eSIM application from the App Store and use it to initiate prepaid service. T-Mobile says uh, its support of the iPhone eSIM is intended for those who travel to the U.S., for existing T-Mobile customers who need a secondary line of service on their device, and for those who wish to take T-Mobile service for a spin before making a longer commitment. T-Mobile will continue to require physical SIM cards for primary lines and family plans. AT&T and Verizon's method for activating the eSIM requires users visit a store and use a scannable QR code sent to them via the carrier. Sprint will not support the eSIM until 2019. Uh, A little bit more to unpack with this. We'll jump into that in questions and comments. Uh, Next up, as reported last week, several government agencies have given T-Mobile and Sprint the approval they needed to move forward with their planned merger. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., the Department of Defense, and the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Justice have all agreed to the deal valued at $26.5 billion. Now, in order to appease the agencies, T-Mobile and Sprint's parent organizations, which are Deutsche Telekom and SoftBank, have said that they'll reconsider their use of equipment from Chinese supplier Huawei. The combined company will have about 100 million customers, putting it on even ground with AT&T and Verizon. The deal still needs to win the approval of the FCC and FTC. T-Mobile expects the deal to close during the first half of 2019. And T-Mobile responded this week after being accused by the Rural Wireless Association, or RWA, of misstating coverage. The RWA alleged that T-Mobile overstated where it provides coverage in rural areas. If the federal government determines an area is properly covered, it won't provide additional funds to cover it. Contrary to the RWA's claim that T-Mobile submitted future coverage, T-Mobile says they followed required procedures and submitted shapefiles reflecting LTE coverage as of December 2017. 
They also said rather than overstating our coverage, uh, the submitted files were more likely to understate coverage as T-Mobile continued to expand its network throughout the challenge process. RWA's misrepresentations are part of an ongoing pattern of baseless allegations by the organization against T-Mobile designed to delay and thwart competition in rural America and deprive rural Americans from meaningful choice for broadband services. The RWA made its claims against T-Mobile and Verizon just before the FCC announced an investigation into rule breaking amidst the major carriers for overstating coverage. T-Mobile insists that it is not under investigation by the FCC for inaccurate maps. Now, it is super interesting to talk about maps and coverage that's being shown on a piece of paper uh, representing the radio frequencies that are being put out by these towers because uh, as uh, we've talked about from time to time in various you know reasons or for various reasons uh, the the way that a tower works and provides its coverage is uh, very much dependent on all sorts of different factors. Uh, there's a ton of environmental things that can change how re- wireless uh, frequencies uh, are propagated, such as humidity, rain, uh, foliage on trees, and uh, other things. Obviously, it's not just buildings that get in the way of these signals. And as a result, the maps themselves are merely representations of what the carrier thinks uh, they can provide based on uh, the power output of those towers into a specific area. So if you take a look at what they would be potentially putting out there, yes, there are going to be times when they are not correct. Now, if they're coming into an area and saying there's a tower 50 miles away and they can provide coverage, uh, that's a whole other story. But I don't think that's what is happening here. I think it's probably uh, it's probably some of the former and it's it's where they've got potentially some minor issues with this here. So a uh, very interesting thing here. And uh, obviously Verizon responded to this, as we talked about a few months back. Uh, and ultimately, I don't think the FCC would uh, investigated them uh, for the practice. And uh, we move on. T-Mobile this week also said that the 5G phone uh, that it first announces will be the same phone that Samsung is uh, announcing with AT&T and Verizon. Neville Ray, T-Mobile CFO, confirmed uh, on a blog post that T-Mobile is working on that phone too and other 5G devices with other OEMs and chipset manufacturers. And they said they expect to have multiple 5G devices that will work across multiple spectrum bands launching in 2019. They also specified, uh, they only specified that it will launch 5G in 2019 and uh, they hope to have a much broader launch to deliver to 5G to more people at once than just coming out in a few select markets. Well, no device news this week, so let's move on to software. Apple Monday made iOS 12.1.2 available to iPhones and iPads. Uh, the update targets several bugs related to the eSIM activation on the 10R, 10S, and 10S Max. It also addresses an issue that could affect cellular connectivity in some markets on those same phones. 12.1.2 is free to download over the air. Now, um, I say iPhones and iPads. I didn't see it on my iPad, uh, and so I'm not sure if this actually did come out, but that was the original claim that it was going to. You know, I didn't take a look at my iPad either, but I would say do not install this if you have not yet, because I saw some reports today that the uh, that it possibly could mess up your cellular connection on your device. So uh, hold off on it. And they even actually released an update to this this week as well, where it's a slightly newer build uh, of it. But uh, so just hold off on it. Yeah, I, I did it. Uh, I don't remember when I got it. I think it was the maybe the night after it was announced and have not seen any issues with it. It seems to be working just fine for me 
at this point. But uh, definitely, yeah, if you're, um, I, I saw those as well. It didn't seem to be completely widespread, and there was not a whole lot of other information that came out about it. But yeah, I mean, certainly when when these kind of reports come up, it's uh, uh, not a bad idea just to hold off until everything kind of gets ironed out. And you'll soon be able to send and receive in-app content from the Apple App Store as a gift. Apple recently updating the App Store review guidelines and therein gave developers the ability for apps to be gifted uh, or apps may enable gifting of items that are eligible for in-app purchases to others. Such gifts may only be refunded to the original purchaser and also may not be exchanged. Apple did not spell out how developers would implement the feature. Uh, this Also, they did not say how that feature would work for the end user. Before the change, it was only possible for people to gift apps to one another and not the content within. And I've actually done that, gifted apps to people, especially like paid apps, you know, it was very easy. But of course, now a lot of applications are freemium. So it completely negates the ability to do that. So that's probably why they're adding this. Yeah. And obviously the in-app uh, purchases is uh, something that can be kind of an interesting one because if you're, you know, if you're downloading it for maybe a family device or a device that gets used by other people uh, and then they are, you know, potentially wanting to upgrade or do different things and you've got to talk to the other user. Um, I, I definitely prefer um, the model of actually buying the app outright to begin with and not having to deal with this. But I think the developers are looking at it as a way to make more money. Absolutely, because of course with family sharing, which of course application developers can turn off, but with uh, with app sharing, which was basically on every single app, you'd just buy the app once and share it with your entire family as well. So you'd save a bunch of money in that case. But if you're using freemium, you don't have that choice. Yeah, and it's actually, uh, the other part of it is it can be difficult if you are, um, you can do restorations of in-app purchases, um, but depending on how you set up the device, so I had an issue where I had, of course, and this makes sense now that I'm saying it out loud, but um, I, I had, we had a family device that was logged in um, under one of our family members and then moved, we added a, a child account, a sub, I think it's 13 years old account uh, to our, our iTunes account so that the device could then be logged in with that. And you can still get access to all the applications that you've downloaded, but you don't get the in-app purchases because it's a different user ID. So it's uh, it was definitely a frustrating thing to to learn, but uh, and also one where you go, okay, well, I guess from now on, you're just going to uh, you know download those in-app purchases on the device or on the account, but you're right, you don't get to uh, share them with others. Uh, next up uh, in uh, Android software, Google on Monday has said their Google Assistant will play a greater role in alerting travelers for delayed flights. The Assistant has been uh, sharing delayed flight predictions since earlier this year. It uses historic flight data and merges that with machine learning to predict when a flight may be delayed, sometimes even before the airline knows. With the number of travelers increasing during the holidays, Google says it will share flight data predictions more proactively. Assistant will send notifications to users' phones when it determines that there might be a delay, and it will offer details behind the delay when it can. These changes will appear automatically, though travelers can always ask the assistant directly about their flight's status. Facebook this week pushed out an update to Facebook Messenger, adding a handful of new functions. Messenger gains a new portrait mode for taking selfies. The feature uses the user-facing camera and software to create a blurred background, giving selfies more of a pop. Second, Messenger allows people to capture boomerang videos. Boomerangs are short, looping GIFs that are highlight that highlight movement. Facebook Messenger is available from iTunes and Google Play. 
Fitbit Monday said it is distributing Fitbit OS 3.0 to its two most powerful devices, the Iconic and the Versa, both smartwatches. Uh, the upgraded platform is more personal and customizable. It includes a revised Fitbit Today dashboard that features new tiles so owners can see their sleep quality, weight, water intake, and food at a glance. The Fitbit app gallery boasts several new apps, so you can uh, take a, fr- a fresh health and fitness application uh, for people who remain to help people remain on target each day. Another new app, which is TRX, offers quick guided workouts, and FitBark lets people add their pets' activity to their own. Lastly, revised gold-based exercise uh, modes let people set targets and ensure real-time stats are properly recorded for more than 15 different activities. Both are compatible with Android and iOS, and the watch update is available via the associated mobile phone application. And Google this week updated the limit uh, it initially placed on the number of photos and videos that could be added to its live album. When launched in October, the service supported up to 10,000 live photos or videos. That number is now 20,000, though Google does warn that the large album size may limit features of live albums, though it didn't elaborate to which ones. Live albums relies on object recognition to automatically identify people and pets and build albums around those identities. Well, a couple of questions and comments this week. First up is a comment from Phil, and he says, Mickey and Joey, uh, this is uh, a bit long and rambly, but I'll start with the punchline by saying eSIM activation is very much a work in progress and probably should be avoided at least for a while. Here are the details. So my experience with the T-Mobile eSIM application has not gone well. I have the iPhone 10s on Verizon. I purchased it from Apple and uh, it was running iOS 12.1.1. I was curious to see how well it would work uh, to have my personal and work numbers on the same phone. One of the prepaid options T-Mobile has is the tourist option for $30, but that expires after three weeks. Uh, But I thought it would be a painless way to try it out. At first, it seemed to go well. I downloaded the app uh, and created a new prepaid account using an email address I had not yet used with T-Mobile, which, of course, is an annoying requirement. I entered my credit card information and got a screen with my new number saying an email would arrive soon. Uh, And that was the end of the good times. It never got the email um, and the eSIM never appeared to activate. Uh, I tried restarting the phone, nothing. So I contacted T-Mobile support. And after a lot of handing off and checking, they decided my iPhone must be locked. Not sure how that could have happened since I bought it from Apple. They wanted me to wipe the phone and restore. I was reluctant to do that since that often results in extra setup of some services after a restore. Uh, When I learned that I couldn't port a number into T-Mobile's eSIM account, the value of doing this has declined. I couldn't also move my work number to an eSIM, even if it did work. Uh, and they told me that the only way to cancel and not be charged was to dispute the charge with my bank. Uh, I also did try the up, try updating to iOS 12.1.2 uh, since that was supposed to fix some of the eSIM issues. Maybe it was too late, but it didn't help either. Next, I contacted Verizon, and apparently they did lock my phone. Their explanation was with the eSIM feature, it did get locked upon the software update to have access to the eSIM. Since you have the option to add service from another provider to the eSIM, it's a way to ensure it then verify it's not fraudulent activity. They helped me unlock it, and I went back to T-Mobile, and they gave me a confusing and incomplete instructions. Uh, at first, they wanted me to start all over again, uh, but I said I had already changed, been charged and had a phone number. Uh, then they told me to do it manually without giving me sufficient information to add a cellular plan manually. Anyway, in the end, I decided not to pursue it since the line was of questionable value, as stated above Phil. Well, Phil, I, I do not blame you at all. Uh, you went a lot further than I would have gone with this. I would have probably given up after the first uh, time when it didn't work and, and I couldn't get it added. Um, it, you know, obviously a series of events with the locked phone and whatnot, but 
Uh, it, it is very annoying that you can't, number one, port in numbers to this. Number two, it has to be a prepaid line. It has to be a primary line. Uh, it's it's definitely not as usable and, and very inflexible, at least a lot more than we thought it was going to be. Yeah, and I think it's probably going to be a couple of years until you can kind of just take a normal phone number, normal account, and just change it to an eSIM. I think they're uh, trying to dip their toes into it uh, by having these limitations right now. So uh, don't hold your breath for being actually usable for work and, and personal numbers uh, quite yet. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy that they, they they came up with all these limitations. It seems like, you know, Apple had really good intentions uh, with it, or at least uh, the, it, the, the thought was that they were going to have good intentions with it. That's how they presented it. And then the carriers got involved and then it turns into a mess. Yeah, exactly. The carriers do, do not want to relinquish the control or the, you know, they, they, they're used to the way they do business right now and they don't want that to change, uh, at least not right away. So they have to kind of uh, ease into it. My uh, experience uh, with Google Voice has uh, been positive enough, and when I say positive enough, it's been very positive, um, that I have almost no interest in doing this. About the only thing that I, I thought would, was going to be interesting um, about having the, the dual SIM was the ability to put in a, a SIM from a different carrier to provide access to um, that carrier's data network. And so if my own data network on T-Mobile wasn't you know functioning as, as quickly as I wanted it to, perhaps I'm in a building or something, I could have thrown in another SIM and used that. But the problem was um, you need to have an unlocked phone, which I don't, uh, and uh, I'm not interested in spending the money at this time to uh, pay off the device uh, to get it unlocked uh, to an unlocked state. Um, and even then, uh, it seems like I, I might still have uh, some other issues with it. And um, the I also ha- I had a Verizon SIM. I don't anymore, but I had a Verizon SIM that I was using for an iPad. Um, but the you know they don't let you use. Um, the eSIM for the primary line on T-Mobile, as an example. So I would have to have the eSIM available on Verizon and just add that if it was the, that was what I was looking to do. But either way, um, a lot of uh, interesting uh, limitations with this here that have come up uh, that we just didn't think about or realize uh, when we first talked about it. Uh, so, Phil, thank you very much for going through the process. Sorry for the pain, uh, but uh, certainly a value to the, the listeners of the show knowing your experience going through that. Next up is a comment from Chuck. He says, Mickey and Joey, thanks again for another great year of the Cell Phone Junkie. Looking forward to more in 2019. Uh, Thanks, Chuck. We are as well. Uh, Chuck says, one of the listeners had asked a question regarding current flip phone options. I've run across a couple. Uh, AT&T recently carried a device called the Kyocera Dura XE. It's basically a ruggedized flip phone that has voiceover LTE as well as Wi-Fi mobile hotspot functionality with a proper data plan. It runs a stripped-down version of Android with no Play Store or Google Maps, but it's nice to carry around if all you want to do, uh, if you do all your computing on a traditional computer or or laptop. The device does allow you, though, to configure uh, Outlook for email if you want to stay on top of that. There's also a device, the Alcatel One Touch, which is made by TCL. It has a couple of options with their Go Flip on T-Mobile and singular, uh, a couple of options known as the Go Flip and Singular Flip 2. Uh, these devices run on the Kai OS variants, which is the old Firefox OS. Uh, they're short on apps and mapping support, however. I believe both support VoiceOver LTE, but the T-Mobile version does support Wi-Fi mobile hotspot. The AT&T version supports tethering, though not sure why AT&T did not activate the Wi-Fi mobile hotspot. 
Um, other more risky options would be buying older phones uh, in the uh, aftermarket. Uh, with drawbacks, of course, being no support for voice over LTE or just LTE in general. Improper banding for your carrier. Some carrier devices block you from setting up the device on the modern or current APNs for data usage. Browser rendering on an old WAP browser continues to be horrendous uh, with no modern HTML5 pages. And with the state of 2G and 3G network sunsets in the U.S. and legacy carriers already starting to turn it off like AT&T, your ability to use these devices may be short-lived. Uh, Mickey and Joey, like you said, it seems a little funny that we're talking about flip phones in soon-to-be 2019. However, with a smartphone that goes off with notifications like a Vegas slot machine all week long, sometimes it would be nice to swap that SIM out over the weekend and focus on those important things with just a phone that makes phone calls. Thanks again, guys. Happy holidays, Chuck. That's a bunch of good information, and I do miss my flip phone, I have to admit. Uh, I, I still miss that BlackBerry style that I had, and even the old Palm flip phone that I had. I just liked having that form factor a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, Part of me feels like I could get away with the flip phone <clears throat> because of the way that I use a tablet um, and uh, the fact that it comes with me you know, more often than not. Uh, but there are just there are enough things uh, that you know I use the phone for that I just I decide that it it's doesn't make sense and um, you know it it's not like I again I don't have uh, the uh, the tablet with me all the time um, certainly there are there are plenty of times when I would just like to you know be you know mobile and uh, sometimes the tablet is not there so um, it's not perfect and I think the phone uh, a smartphone still stays in my pocket at least for uh, many years to come I I have a very hard time seeing going back to something. That is this stripped down. But anyway, thanks again, Chuck. As Joey mentions, a lot of great information in here. And finally today, a question from Joseph. And he says, I want to compare uh, the cost uh, for phone minutes uh, today versus in 1983 when the first mobile phone service debuted. I know that making calls on an analog network was very pricey. I just don't know how much it was. It's easy to forget that all-inclusive plans did not exist and long distance was extra. Um, Joseph. So, uh, yeah, super interesting question here and kind of a nostalgic one, of course, too. Um, you know, so I was able to find um, an image, what appears to be a sales sheet, uh, and this was of a cellular one plan, and it, it does look like it was from the 80s. Um, the, the first thing is the plans themselves had monthly access charges, and that's just the ability to use, um, you know, the device. Uh, and that started at $20 a month and went up to $160 a month. And um, outside of that, then you paid for the minutes. And so it depended on what it was that you were trying to do. So if you went with that $20 plan, uh, it, the first 60 minutes cost you 36 cents per minute for peak. Remember, you had peak and off peak. And uh, off peak was 20 cents per minute. You then had um, toll-free calling. So it looks like you got some uh, uh, some long distance thrown in here. And that was uh, 38 cents a minute. Uh, for peak and uh, 25 cents for off peak. And then it kind of went up from there where you had some plans that included minutes. Uh, you had 180 minutes for $60 a month. Uh, you had 360 minutes for $100 a month. Uh, and that was all for local airtime. Uh, you got uh, a VIP access. You got 650 minutes for $160 a month. Uh, and then you got uh, th this highest end was a, 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 a thousand minute plan. And it was $229 a month. 
And I feel like the prices were actually higher than that. But of course, if it was 1980s dollars, you know, in today's dollars, it's actually quite a bit more expensive. But you briefly mentioned it. But yes, long distance wasn't included. And those were local only plans. You could not really go roaming. Every once in a while, you'd have the support to actually go roaming. Um, but you would be charged a lot extra if you were doing that as well. So you had to stay within your local calling area, which is kind of like maybe the, the metro area or maybe the state, depending on how the plans were set up. But it was a, they were very limited uh, on the AMP service uh, because of uh, all those technical uh, uh, restrictions as well. And of course, in those days, you had to have a very high-powered phone. So usually it was either a car phone or a bag phone where you could get a number of watts out of it and a big antenna in order to actually make and receive calls because there weren't that many towers. Yeah, and if you think back to um, you know the first phone that was really the mobile phone, which was the, the Dynatac, <clears throat> and that was the brick phone, and everyone, um, even I think the, the manufacturer, Motorola, called it a brick um, but it was mobile. Uh, you could make calls in it. 30 minutes of calls is the, the amount of time that you generally got out of that battery. But you still got, you know, a good amount of, um, you know, uh, of calling out of it from a, like at that point when you're spending, you know, half a dollar a minute or so. I mean, you were you probably weren't going to be talking for more than five or 10 minutes at a time. Um, and, uh, you know, the the phone itself cost four thousand dollars. So this is 1983, four thousand dollars. The average, uh, you know, salary for a person in the country at that point uh, was something or I guess it wouldn't be the average, but the, um, you know, kind of that that um, that person uh, that is buying this is definitely not, you know, the average Joe, um, that would be the equivalent of almost a $10,000 device now. Uh, and you think about what the average, you know, wages for someone around this country, it's probably $30,000 or something like that. So it's a good amount. It's a third of the, you know, the amount of what somebody is making. So, um, it's a, it was crazy to think that, you know, someone was spending that much money on a device and a time, but at, you know, it was also, it was a status symbol. It was something that, uh, was was incredibly useful from a communication standpoint, and uh, it was it was expensive, but uh, you know a ton of R and D went into the the hardware, uh, so hence the reason that the pricing was so high. Um, the network itself was obviously very expensive to run; uh, it wasn't very robust, uh, and so it it cost a lot to use it. And uh, here we are now, uh, how many years later, you know, just uh, call it thirty five short years later, and we're able to use our phones literally around the world. Um, you know, for the equivalent of uh, $50 a month, uh, which is, uh, you know, in- incredible when you think about it. So, um, Joseph, it, it kind of a, a fun nostalgia question here for us. And thank you very much for sending it in. Well, if you have any questions or comments for us, this coming week is the week to send them. This is historically the slowest news week of the year. We are between, of course, the holidays. Christmas is on Tuesday. New Year's is coming up the following Tuesday. Uh, and uh, so not a whole lot of news will be out. We'll have CES coming up the weekend after that. Uh, and so we'll have a lot of device announcements and things to talk about coming out of that show. So if you have things that you want us to talk about, you're off of work for the week, you're sitting there thinking about stuff, give us a call, 650-999-0524. I don't know, I think about mobile phone stuff all the time, and especially when I'm not working, I think about it even more. 650-999-0524, leave a voicemail, uh, or send us an email, questions at thecellphonejunkie.com, and we'll get whatever you have to say uh, on next week's show, because I'm sure we'll be looking for lots of stuff from you guys to talk about. Joey, thank you very much, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.